Well, good morning. It's so good to see you. Uh, I am fired up and honored to be here, and I want to just start with a word of prayer. So let's, uh, let's pray together and ask God to superintend over our time together, to open our hearts and minds to what he might want to say to us, to position ourselves. I, I like this idea of being in the seat of indifference. Lord, I'm going to lay down my agenda. I'm going to lay down my need to control. Just speak to me and let me respond to you. So let's, let's do that together. Lord, we're grateful. What an honor and privilege it is to gather together and to worship you, to sit uh, at, at your feet, to allow the word of God to speak to us, to, to raise us up to maturity in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you'd help us to hear the voice of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Have your way in our mind and our hearts. Uh, make the scriptures come alive to us. And help us to be able to hear the voice of God. Every one of us are in a slightly different place in our lives. And you are well acquainted with each of our stories. So Holy Spirit, would you walk the aisles of this room? Would you set upon us and speak to us? May we have the sense that we have been in the presence of God today. And that we let you speak to us and we responded with your help. So Lord, we give all of that to you and ask it in the wonderful name of Jesus our risen Savior. Amen. Amen. Man, it is good to be here with you. I've been here pretty much all week and got to meet with some of your elders, some of their spouses, got to meet with your staff members and staff member spouses. And uh, we've been praying for you. We believe that the best is yet to come at Summit Church. It occurred to me, I don't know why this is, if anybody else uh, can identify with this. I particularly hear the voice of God in the bathroom. I don't know why that's the case. Uh, but uh, this morning I went into the restroom right over there and, and it was like uh, 40 years of history and it just leapt in my heart. 40 is a significant number all throughout the scriptures. And uh, my favorite 40, and there are lots of 40s in the Bible. My favorite 40 is after the resurrection, Jesus hung out with the disciples for 40 days, teaching them the things of the kingdom. I mean, if I could live in any 40-day window of history, that's the one I want to just have the resurrected Jesus teaching me the things of the kingdom. Holy cow. Uh, so 40 is a big deal, and I think our next 40 are going to be uh, epic. So I'm glad you're a part of it. We've been in this series called Courageous and learning about courageous faith. And I think I'm the omega of that series. I think I'm wrapping that series up today, uh, if, I, if I remember right. And um, when I think about courageous, I think about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. And that whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7, it's interesting because it's heralded as the greatest body of teaching in human history. I mean by people of all beliefs, uh, all people who, who appreciate ancient wisdom, people who are believers in Christ and not believers in the resurrected Christ, agree that, that those three chapters... And that sermon that Jesus gave on that hill, probably the greatest embodiment of teaching human wisdom ever to be spoken. What's ironic about that is that that appreciates the idyllic beauty of it, but not the radical nature of it. And when Jesus spoke that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's teaching a different way to live your life. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. And what we learn as we keep growing in our faith, and 
man, I hope you're here to keep growing your faith. Or if you're checking out the claims of Christianity, if you're watching online and you're just kind of checking out the claims of Christianity, welcome. We're so glad you're here. What we're about here is to becoming more like Jesus, to, to join the way of Jesus, to let Jesus have his way in our lives and for us to be transformed into his likeness and to live on mission with him where we live, work, study, and play. So that's what we're about. And, and Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a huge uh, portion of teaching us, this is my aha, that almost everything we instinctively think about almost anything we experience is inherently wrong. <laughs> How's that for encouragement today? Uh, I do know that everything I naturally think about God is wrong. If I don't have the scriptures guiding me to understand what God thinks about me and how I should think about God, I will instinctively guess wrong about what God is thinking about me or how God wants to connect back with me. We think about earning it. And we think about, you know, uh, wages and all that. Well, the same is true in Matthew 5. You realize that when you think about your enemies, anything you think about how you should respond to your enemies is probably wrong. Uh, the way you handle um, wounds, the way you think about marriage, the way you think about prosperity, the way you think about suffering. I mean, just the whole thing we realize that what God is doing through his word is teaching us how to think differently, how to live a different life by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that he gives us to help us. But man, we are instinctively wrong about almost everything. And so uh, if you don't resonate with that, if you say, hey, you know, hey, Jimbo, you may be instinctively wrong about everything. I'm, I'm a little sharper than that. Good for you, because I, I, I keep finding that I'm instinctively wrong about a lot of things. Today, we're going to talk about courageous faith and this notion of how Jesus calls us to think about money and possessions. Now, some of you might go, oh, man, I brought a friend today. You're going to talk about money and possessions. I brought a friend, dude. Uh, it's okay. It's okay, because if you care, like if you're on a mission to learn about Jesus and learn the way of Jesus and actually have your life apprehended by his grace and empowered by his presence and you want to live a different kind of life, uh, money and possessions is a significant conversation. Jesus talked more about money and possessions than any other topic except love. Twice as much about money and possessions as he did about heaven and hell. It's a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Well, everything he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount is a big deal. Uh, why is it a big deal? It's a big deal, not because God, I want you to get this thought in your head, not because God is a restrictive God, not because God is interested in clamping you down, but because God knows that our hearts are prone to wonder. God knows that our hearts are prone to latch onto things that give us comfort that really aren't best for us. God knows that given my own impulse, I will react to my enemies differently than, than is life-giving to me. So he wants me to react to my enemies the way he calls me to because he has my best interest at heart. So this is a great conversation for people on any part of their journey of faith because, man, money and possessions is a big part of our life. So here's our big idea for today, okay? I, I'm a, I like the big idea. The big idea is what I want you to walk out of here uh, really knowing and wrestling with. And that is this, that courageous faith requires us to come to terms with our beliefs about money and possessions. If we're going to be courageous in our faith, we've got to come to terms. We've got to really contend with everything we think about money and possessions. 
Uh, Otherwise, we will get this wrong, and it's such a significant part of our lives. So we're in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 19 to 34. And what I'd love you to do, uh, you know, I know it's not the age of carrying around real Bibles, paper Bibles. I'm a Kindle guy. I love to read. I have, I probably have 200 books on my digital library, but there's something about holding the book. But no matter what you, whatever tool you have, I want you to bring it up. We're going to put it on the screen, but it won't stay there. So I would love it if you would uh, open up your smart device and find Matthew chapter 6, because I want you to look. We're going we're gonna to let this passage really teach us and speak to us. And by the way, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, all of these words are in red, which means that they were spoken by Jesus himself. And so we're going to be in Matthew 6, verse 19 to 34. And uh, I just want to say one more time, what a privilege it is to be here. Uh, I pray for you often. Uh, Our elders are praying for you often. People that know me pray for you because they know I love you. And uh, it's just an honor to be here, uh, to be a part of today with you. Now, it is my custom and practice to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you're willing and able to do that, that would make me feel at home. And we're going to read together Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. By the way, you know, this, this need to really wrestle our beliefs about money and possessions. Finances have a way of revealing things uh, about, our, about our faith, whether it's courageous or not. And I, and I, and I, I think in alliteration because preachers do that. And I was thinking about the three, not the only three, but three significant ways that our faith is revealed. And that's through finances, through fear. The things we fear really reveal how centered our faith and trust is in God. And then forgiveness. You know, when we refuse to forgive, that reveals something in our hearts too. So uh, this is a really important conversation. Here we go. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If your whole body, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble 
of its own. The Word of God. You can be seated. Thanks so much. And keep your uh, Bible or device open to that. Because we're going we're gonna to let the Lord speak to us right through the words of Jesus on this really important uh, topic. And the first thing that I want you to see is that there are three economic facts of life that are revealed by Jesus in this passage. Three kind of uh, facts of life about uh, the economy. And here's the thing. The first one is that the way you view wealth and possessions reveals something about your heart. And uh, this is important because the way you view wealth or possessions reveals something about what's going on inside of you. And we see this right at the very start. This is how it kicks off in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures on heaven. And the word treasures there is actually the word treasure box. And the store up idea is that you put things in your treasure box for later and you keep growing your treasure box. And this is your goal is to, is to have your box of treasures mounting. This is comforting to us. And so uh, he says, listen, your treasure, we all have treasure box in our soul, in our heart uh, that calm us down. And so he says, don't, don't keep filling up your treasure box on earth because it's vulnerable. It's not eternal. Uh, it can come and go. Um, man, I have more than ever. And uh, Jessica, you know this, uh, controls an illusion. We pray for Jessica, the fire in her condo building. Uh, controls an illusion. We're a phone call away. We're an economic collapse away, right? I mean, controls an illusion anyway. So don't store up in your treasure box here. Instead, store a treasure box that is eternal. Now, uh, this is uh, significant because it's about where you're spending your energy and your time. He says, and, and I want to point out, because what he's calling you to is an inherently selfish thing. Because I want you to see this phrase, do not store up for yourself a treasure box on earth, but instead store up for yourself an eternal treasure box. See, he's calling you to do this for yourself. And one of the illusions about money and possessions is that I'm building something for myself. And what the truth is, is that if you give yourself to the non-eternal, if you, give your, if you wrap your identity around it, if you give your whole efforts to it, to things that don't matter eternally, you're not blessing yourself. You're actually sabotaging yourself. But store up for yourself a treasure box of eternal treasure. And so this is a call for us to, first of all, understand that wherever our treasure box is, that's where our heart is. This is why God is, this is why money and possessions are so important to him. Because where your treasure is, this is where it finishes in that paragraph, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So what God is calling us to do is to put our heart into treasure boxes of things that are eternal. What's eternal? There's only two things eternal, God and people. That's it, man. Uh, you know, you never saw a hearse with a U-Haul behind it taking your goods to heaven like it doesn't happen that way. And so all that you get forever is God and us. This is and so, man, treasure box, treasure box, treasure box, Billy, this is good for you. Can you imagine having enormous wealth and dying all alone? And then you sit there and go, what was all that for? What you're going to care about. Two of my friends died in the last two weeks. What you're going to care about when you approach the end of your life is people and God. 
build that treasure box because this is not a restriction to inhibit your pleasure of this world. In fact, the scripture says that God has given us all things for our pleasure. It's not about God restricting your ability to enjoy the blessings he's given you. It's about where your treasure box is and storing up for yourself a treasure box. So that's the first uh, fact of life. The second one is uh, down in uh, verse 24. And that's this, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, I want to help you understand this because that implies that money is insidious, that money is nefarious, that money is in some way bad. And we know this, that money is a thing. Money is not uh, good or bad. Money's a thing. It's like, uh, I was thinking about it this morning, it's like building materials. Like you can build a building. Uh, I was while we were worshiping, I was having the scripture go through my head. We are living stones being built together into a habitation of God by his spirit. This is what, I, you know, build your church, build your church. That's who we are. Uh, but if you, take a, if you take building materials and you build a place where human beings are going to be tortured, where people are going to be abused, then those, you could say, well, those building materials are uh, bad. Money is neutral. Money is a thing. That's all it is. But we... Uh, the word used there for money is, is the word mammon. Now, that's an interesting word because mammon carries with it a strong negativity about the spirit of a thing. So here's the warning. The warning is not don't handle money, don't save money, don't earn as much money as you can. These are not the warnings. The warnings are that you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is when you take money and you turn it into something it was never intended to be i.e. your source of identity. I am how much money I make. I am how much, I'm, I am how nice my house is. I am the car I drive. I, my identity is that I'm a wealth producer. So this is, a, this is when money becomes mammon. Or when you say uh, money is where my trust grows. How come I have more faith when I have plenty and my faith is rattled when I have little? That's a revelation about what money's doing to you and how much you trust in it, Right? Uh, uh, you know, the scripture says that, that God is an ever-present help in time of trouble and a shelter from the storm. And a dad caught his son in a lie one day, and he said, son, do you know what a lie is? And he said, yeah, dad, it's an ever-present help in time of trouble and a shelter from the storm. And some of us live like money is that. Money is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Money is a shelter from the storm, and I'm finding comfort by having more of it. Now we've turned money from a thing into a spirit, where you are now attaching way too much value there and you're finding from money what you're supposed to find from God. That's called idolatry. So again, God is speaking to us about money and possessions, not because money and possessions are inherently evil, but because they uniquely have the capacity to change who we are. One of my favorite Donald Trump quotes from before he was president was, people who say money doesn't make you happy just don't know where to shop. And some people say, man, money will make me happy. Money becomes mammon when it's your pathway to human fulfillment. Because God says, listen, I have a way for you. 
Man, I have a way for you to be free from the weight of your sin. I have a way to heal you from your deepest wounds. I have a future for you that is full of beauty and restoration and redemption. I have a community I want to make you a part of where you have real love and care one for another. I have some amazing things I want to do for you. And if money gets in the way where you're staring at wealth and possession and saying, well, this is what I trust. It's significant that on our currency it says, in God we trust. That was a late addition. That wasn't, that wasn't from our founding fathers but man, I'm glad it's there. Every time you look at a bill, you see in God we trust, it's actually a challenge to us. So the second economic truth is you can't serve God and mammon. It can't be done. And so this is why it's so important that we calibrate this. The third uh, uh, fact of life here comes from verse 33. And, and it really is this, that the greatest economic decision you could ever make is to put God first in your life. So he says, stop worrying. Well, we, we worry, don't we? And, we? and we fret and we think and we do the math. And uh, he says, listen, seek first the kingdom of God. This is the smartest economic decision you will ever make. And I'm telling you, as, a, as an older guy who's been all over the map on uh, money and possessions, the greatest single financial decision you'll ever make is to put God first in your life. This is what courageous faith does. Courageous faith says, I see the numbers. I'm doing what I can. I'm trying to be smart, but my trust is in God alone. And he has my heart. Here's what I know. Here's what God knows about you. You're never going to find what your soul is longing for when you look for it in the wrong places. So the greatest decision you can make Jesus Christ is first in my life. Commandment number one, there will be no other gods before me. And so this is, the, this is our path. So if we're going to choose courageous faith, I think this passage gives us four um, priorities of courageous stewardship. So let's just talk about it that way. Four priorities of courageous stewards. And I want to walk through these four because they'll help us now start to think about, okay, what should, what should I be doing as I assess my own relationship with money and possessions? We have a relationship with money and possessions. Uh, it, it does, uh, we have feelings about it, and we have emotions about it, and we have dreams about it. So it's a significant part. So here's four uh, kind of priorities for courageous stewards. The first one is obedience. Comes right out of Matthew 6, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. So here's where he starts the conversation. You can't have two masters. You're going to love one, and you're, going to, and, and you're going to hate the other. You're going to be devoted to one. You're going to despise the other. This is a truth about human uh, reality. You can't have two masters. Well, if we're talking about masters, then we're talking about obedience. Because a master has the right to dictate our behavior. A master is the person who says, do it this way, uh, become this person. The master calls the shots. So th the truth about us is I need a master. Left on my own, this is, you know, we're in, a, we're in the, an anxiety explosion like never before in human history. The number of people spiking with anxiety issues and spiking with uh, suicidal ideation, it's at an all-time high. And I think one of the reasons why is because the culture is telling you there is no God, there is no place for you to hold on to that's bigger than you. So uh, the humanist manifesto is whatever you feel is true. 
So the world's up to you. Like, uh, you know, you are who you think you are. And you can be what you want to be. And you can bend the world to your wishes because inside you, that's where all truth comes from. And if you have any self-awareness at all, your thought about, I'm the one determining truth, holy crap, we're in serious trouble. How in the world can I be trusted to determine truth from lies? How can I be trusted to determine what's worth living for and what's not? I don't have that capacity and neither do you. We were not created with that kind of wisdom. We need God to superintend us and guide us into a fruitful, powerful, liberated, whole, restored, beautiful, life-giving life. Without him, we got no shot. That means he's my master. And so the very first priority of a person who says, Jesus is my Lord and God is my master. God the Father is my master. Your first priority is obedience to that God. That's job one, obedience. I mentioned the chair of indifference. Uh, I have a, a professional coach who helps me and he has a spiritual director in his life. And he mentioned to me, uh, this, uh, this principle from his spiritual director, which is to get yourself in the seat of indifference. And uh, I have five adult children. I have five grandkids, which means I pray a lot. And uh, I found that this principle of the chair of indifference has helped me learn how to pray for them. Because here's what, I think you probably identify with this. You do it too. When I pray, I'm telling God how great my plans are and that he ought to just do what I think he ought to do because I got it all figured out. And so really, I'm praying an agenda. I'm not, I'm not saying, Lord, have it your way. I'm saying, hey, Lord, do your thing, and your thing would really work if you did it right here like this. And this chair of indifference is saying, Lord, I don't know Sikkim. I don't know, I don't know anything. And so my agenda is probably not perfect. So I'm going to lay my agenda down. I really want to control the situation, God, but I'm going to lay down my desire to control and here's what I'm going to pray. What would you have me do? And if you say go right, I'll go right. If you say go left, I'll go left. I want to obey you. So when we make decisions, can I just say it this way? Any decision you make that is based entirely on money is a bad decision. It might have been the right decision, but you made it the wrong way. Because at the end of the day, we evaluate things. We calculate risk and we uh, estimate reward and we make, you know, as smart decisions as we can, but at the end of the day, the simple question for a Jesus follower is, what would you have me do? And this is the principle then of the biblical tithe. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to step on dangerous ground for some of you. That's okay. It doesn't hurt for long. God established the priority that he's first. If he's not first, he has no interest in even a close second. He's first or you're lost. And boy, this is, this is the journey of our ongoing faith. Keep remembering, ah, oh, I got to put him first. I mean, we instinctively don't. And so it's a, it's a process. But he established a habit, and the habit is called the tithe. It's the idea that the first 10% of my money, my income, my increase belongs to God. In fact, I don't give my tithe. I pay my tithe. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And so if I take that tithe, I stole it from God. It is his. It's much like the Garden of Eden when God put two trees in the garden and he gave the whole garden. He said, knock yourself out. But this tree, this one's mine. If you touch it, you're going to die. Of course, we make a beeline for the tree. And uh, he says the same about the firstborn throughout the Old Testament. God has always just emphasized that he's first. 
And I have Christian friends, you know, really committed Christian friends who say, well, the tithe is an Old Testament law. It's actually not. The tithe is an Old Testament principle. Abraham tithed to a guy named Melchizedek 432 years before the law was written. It's a principle. It's the only thing Jesus ever affirmed about the Pharisees. He said, you guys tithe even down to the spices. Like if you get a, if you get a pound of cinnamon, you give a tenth of that pound to God. Like you're obsessive about the tithe. He says, don't stop doing that, but you need to learn about love and forgiveness and righteous, true right. You know, you've got lessons to learn, but you got that one right. So people struggle with the tithe. Um, and, and I can tell you that when Sue and I were young marrieds and we went from double income, no kids, they called those dinks in those days. I don't know what they call them now. Dink, man, that is, that's living right there. Double income, no kids. We were eating at Chili's like 20 nights a month. Uh, the house is dirty. I don't want to clean the house. Let's go to a hotel for the night. I mean, we were living large. And then we go from dink income to youth pastor income and two children and, uh, and first-time homeowners. And it was like, holy cow, you actually have to do some math. Uh, and here's our confession. There were times when I was really faithful giving God his tithe, and there were times I didn't. I felt like I couldn't afford to. Like, what am I going to do? Let me just pause here for a parenthetical announcement. If you think I'm trying to raise money for Summit Church, give it somewhere else. I'm trying to raise followers of Jesus who find their way into a flourishing life where your soul is free from the idolatry of money, where money and possessions don't become mammon to you. They just remain a tool that you get to use, that you get to enjoy. You also get to invest, whatever. So if you don't trust my motives, just give it somewhere else. I, I really don't care. I can tell you the elders of this church don't trust you. They trust God. Uh, so just be faithful to God. And if you don't trust us, give it somewhere else because you'll see this. So anyway, we're, we're, you know, we're spotty at best with our tithe in those days. And I'll never forget, we're sitting in the, in the kitchen at the dining room table, the two of us, and realizing that we had not been faithful. And we made a vow to each other. If we got to eat bologna and cheese the rest of our life, God gets his tithe. Now, I was winning in that deal because I happen to love bologna and cheese. Uh, but we made a vow to each other. And we've been faithful from that day forward. And here's what I can tell you just in my own personal testimony. When you give God his share last, it's never there. When you give him his share first, which is what the tithe is, if I, have, if I make $1,000 and I have 10 $100 bills, which one belongs to God? The first one. And when I give him the first one, the other nine stretch for miles. If I give him the last one, it's rarely there when it's time to give it. This is my, this is, and I can tell you, I could line up people in front of you with this testimony. God has been faithful to us. Children of Israel go 40 years in the wilderness. Their sandals don't wear out. Now, those weren't, those weren't you know, 40-year sandals. God takes care of you. The Bible says that uh, when you're not faithful to God, your money sprouts wings and flies away. Like uh, my favorite tithe joke. Preachers have jokes about all kinds of church things. <laughs> my favorite tithe joke is two guys are standing in the lobby, and, and Joe says, hey, where's Bob today? And uh, the other guy says, well, Bob's in the hospital having his tithe taken out. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing. This sounds like slot machines. I put in the tithe, pull the lever, God meets all my needs. It's not like that. 
I trust God. I put God first in my life. This is an act of worship. It is a joyful part of my life. I joyfully give to God the first fruits of my income because he is my provider. The story's told of two guys who met in the fifth grade. They were best friends since fifth grade. They graduate college. One of them is working for a huge company, making 80 grand a year. And his buddy is working for a, an organization that cares about educating uh, at-risk kids. And so he's making 40 grand a year. And after their first year of that, the 80,000 guy says to his buddy, man, you need to drop that job. Come work for us. I can get you a job making 80K tomorrow and double your income. You should do this. And the guy says, listen, I work for God. God told me to do this. And the thing is, so my boss is God, and he vows to give me whatever I need. Your boss will give me 80K. My boss will give me whatever I need. What happens if I go to work for your guy and I need 100K? I'm up creek. Working for my God, for my boss, he meets all of my needs. This is what joyful faith does. And this is just an opportunity. So obedience, okay, obedience. I beat that drum plenty long enough. The first priority of a courageous follower of Jesus is obedience. The second one is generosity. He says, it's a really interesting line, down around verse 22, I think. Uh, yeah, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. And when the eye is good, the body is full of light. And if your eyes are unhealthy, your body's full of darkness. And if, you're, and if your body's full of darkness, how deep is that darkness? Well, it's interesting I've never considered our eyes going from the outside ends. Like if your eyes are healthy, your body's full of light. But if they're unhealthy, your body's full of darkness. He's, if, you, if you have a Bible, there's an asterisk right there or a footnote right there. And it tells you that the word for healthy translates generous. And the word for unhealthy translates stingy. So here's what, here's what he's saying. That if you're generosity is the second priority of followers of Jesus. And if your eyes are generous, if you're thinking of ways to serve other people, if you're looking for ways to help somebody take another step forward, if it's your eyes are always looking for the generous thing, your body is full of light. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. That's who God is. But if your eyes are stingy, man, if you, I think one of the birthmarks of a Christian is generosity. It's gratitude and generosity. I'd probably come up with a third G because I'm a preacher. But gratitude and generosity. And, and he says, if, you're, if your eyes are stingy, suddenly your world gets darker and darker and darker. And man, if, that, if, you're, if your eyes are full of stinginess, the darkness that starts to invade your life is black darkness. So the priorities generate. Why is that so important to God? Well, uh, Philippians two, just going to remind you of this, is uh, is our pattern. Philippians two says, uh, "Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was, uh, though he was God himself, he is equal with God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be leveraged to his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself." took on the form of a servant, was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name so that at some point in history, every knee's gonna bow, every tongue's gonna confess the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus set aside the fact that he is God. He laid that aside. Have this attitude in you that was in Christ. This is the Jesus way. 
I am not the most important person. And my connection to God does not entitle me to abundance while other people have poverty. My attachment to God does not entitle me to uh, all the things that we feel entitled to. Instead, it calls me, it summons me to do with my connection to God what Jesus did with his. Humble myself and take the form of a servant. This is what Christ-likeness is. This is why the scripture says we join him in his suffering so that we might also participate in his resurrection. So Christians are people who join in the suffering of Jesus and live in the power of the resurrection at the very same time. And we choose it just like Jesus did. And so our eyes are generous. Our heart is obedient and our eyes are generous. Third is the, is the priority of management. Because he says, uh, how many of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And we're worried about clothes and we're worried about shelter. And so there's a need for management. Jesus tells other parables about this. Manage well. And so we have this priority to manage what God has entrusted to us. Let me tell you God's two-step plan to become wealthy. You don't have to pay for the seminar. It's right here. Two steps. And uh, this is the only two steps you ever need to know. One, that first step is that you live on less money than you make, and you do it for a really long time. Okay, that's step one. You can't live on more money than you make and manage your resources well. What's that going to do? It's going to, I used to think that was just stupid. Now I realize it's sinful. It's presumptuous. When you spend more money than you make, you're presuming upon God to rescue you. Or you're presuming upon somebody else to rescue you. Or you're presuming on bankruptcy to set you free. But when you spend more money than you make, it's an arrogance and it is, uh, it is, uh, it is an entitlement. Spend less than you make, and here's the boring part, do it for a long time. That's step one. Step two, make your money, go out there and make you some more money. Okay, you, you, you save money, and then you make that money make money. Jesus told parables about this. He said to the unfaithful servant, couldn't you at least have given it to the bankers where I would have gotten interest in return? Instead, you dug a hole and buried it because you were afraid of me. And so that's a, that's a parable that's about our talents and gifts our whole life. But there's the principle he's talking about, the banker, at least make your money make interest. Like get your money to work for you. So spend less money than you make, do it for a long time. And the money you save, put it to work and let it make money for you. This is the plan. It's not complicated. But we like it different than that. And so we got to manage. Okay, I'm probably out of time here. So let me just give you the fourth one, which is legacy. Legacy. Do not worry. Do not fret. Put first again, what does this mean? All this is your legacy, your, your life message to the people closest to you. What are they going to remember when you're gone? Are they going to see somebody who prayed for their enemies, who blessed people who persecuted them? Are they going to see people who turn the other cheek? Are they going to see people who entrust their life to God? I'm talking about your legacy here, what are you going to be remembered for? And especially with your own family. And this is our opportunity to demonstrate faith and trust in God. We do not worry. We do not fret. We trust in God. I used to tell my kids, uh, I have five, I mentioned that already. I used to tell them when they were all living at home, don't count on an inheritance. 
I probably am going to have, uh, I won't have a college fund for you, but I will have a therapy fund because I'm well aware that you're going to need therapy by the time you're adults. Uh, so I'll have a little bit of therapy money for you, but don't count on an inheritance. And this is what I would always tell them. The last check I write is going to be for my funeral and it's going to bounce. So get ready. Uh, and uh, I used to say that all the time to them, uh, joking. And then the Lord really convicted me about this. Proverbs 13, 22 says that a righteous person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. And there's a legacy. Why is our world in so much bad shape? Because the family is broken. Our network of relationships, people we should be able to trust aren't trustworthy. There's a, man, we got a problem. And how do we fix it? We start back to the basics of this bubble that I've got called my family and my home. And I start to demonstrate faith in God instead of faith in money. And I start to demonstrate submission to God instead of entitlement. And I start to demonstrate to God love for people the way God loves me. I start to demonstrate to my family and the people around me a Philippians 2 attitude that I too do not consider my adoption into God's family something to be leveraged to my own advantage, but instead I lay it down and I serve and I do what Jesus did at the Last Supper and I put a towel over my arm and I wash feet. This is what you do. Man, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Our vision here, reach, raise, release. Can you imagine people raised up who bear the image of Jesus, whose lives fully belong to him and who reflect his humility, his love, his generosity, and we're foot washers. And then we're released to the places where we live, work, study, and play. This is how the gospel goes viral. This is how God changes the world. So it's really important. Your life matters. What you do with money and possessions, it matters. How you think about money, man, it matters. And Jesus wants to grow you to maturity where you aren't rattled based on what the stock market's saying. And you aren't rattled in a COVID pandemic where the economy starts to rattle. You aren't rattled because the God you serve is never rattled and your life is in him. So this is how I wanna pray for you as we wrap this up. I wanna pray that you would go to step one. My life belongs to God, okay? We start there and then we let him move in us through these steps of economic facts of life and priorities of a steward. So let's pray together and then I'll walk you through a response opportunity for you. God, I am profoundly grateful. Your generosity toward us is, it's unstoppable. And as I, as I found my life plugged into the economic principles of the kingdom, I find you even more faithful than I ever dreamed. And so Lord, I pray in this moment that you would help us to center our hearts and our minds around the goodness of our God around the reality that you took our sin and you nailed it to the cross and you forgave us and we are not condemned, we are free forevermore. And now we wanna use our freedom to join you, King Jesus, in living with God and for God and having Christ by your spirit live in us. Oh, would you help us today to confront our beliefs about money and possessions? And would you help us to calibrate those beliefs around the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of Jesus, the reality of your kingdom, the fact that we do not need to worry or fret or be afraid. Instead, we can just be obedient and find our way in the way of Jesus to having every need met by the hand of God himself. 
I pray that you'd help us. And Lord, for any who are not in relationship with you, I just want to encourage you, whether you're online or in the room, um, if you say, man, I don't, I'm not even sure I even know God like that. It's as simple as ABC. Admit that you have not been living with and for God. B, believe that Jesus Christ nailed your condemnation to the cross and that you can find your life in him. And C, confess in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's that simple. Nobody can do it for you. I can't pray it for you from here. Only you can do it. And so I'm just going to ask the Lord to help you if that's what you need to do. So Lord, I ask for any in the room or online who need to enter into this vibrant, world-changing relationship with you, where they can find peace for the very first time, where they can live a fearless life, where we can calibrate things like money and possessions correctly. I pray that you'd help them to admit that they've been far from you and not living for you, to believe that you, Jesus, are the God incarnate who has come to bear our sin nailed to the cross and we are free forever because of you. For them to simply confess, Jesus, will you be my Lord? Will you be my Savior? Come into my life. So Lord, we give ourselves to you and we ask you to help us. Holy Spirit, will you help us right now in the powerful name of Christ? Amen. Amen. Now, here's what we're going to do. They're going to lead us in a couple of songs, and this is a chance for you to respond in some way as, the, as maybe you feel prompted to do so. So on either side of the room, you see a prayer light lit up, and at that table are people who are prayer volunteers who've been trained and equipped to just pray with you. So if you've got a need in your life, whether it's financial or anything else, you can go to one of those places, and they'll pray with you and agree in prayer for you. There are communion tables next to that where you can go and you can take communion. Maybe you just want to be alone with God for a moment and celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus for your life. So there's elements there. You can take the bread and the cup, take a moment, pray, and and spend some time that way, connecting to God that way. There's also over here a cross, and there there are uh, pieces of paper and nails, and you can nail something to the cross today. If you need to write a confession down and nail that, if you wanna write out a prayer request or a dream that God's put in your heart and put it on the cross, uh, if, if that's helpful to you in some way, then make yourself at home over there as well, okay? Let's, uh, let's enter into this response time together, either singing, reflecting, praying, communing, whatever helps you. Let's, let's not leave the room without really nailing down what God is saying to us individually. All right, why don't you stand up? Let's do that together. God bless you.